I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Rob Kalin, the founder of Etsy, an online marketplace for handmade crafts and vintage items. Rob started the company in 2005 while he was 25 years old, and Etsy has more than one million artisans who sell their items on the site. Welcome. Thank you. So prior to starting Etsy, you were living in Brooklyn. You were a woodworker and furniture designer. What kind of furniture and woodworking did you do? I was doing a lot of different stuff. I had a line of what I called two-by-furniture, where I was using two-by-fours and using some intricate joinery and making these rustic-looking tables. And prior to that, had taken this long path of just doing everything from demolition to sheetrocking, so learning my materials. How did you first get introduced to woodworking and working with your hands? Through my dad, who he started his own company in architectural specifications when I was growing up, and he was the person who picked what materials things were made out of. So all these companies would, would always send him free materials to try and encourage him to specify them in the buildings. And so I just grew up with tons of free samples of tile, and I remember a piece of bulletproof glass with a bullet shot in it and was making things out of it. And then combine that with the kind of natural curiosity and desire for self-reliance, and you just basically start making things. You mentioned self-reliance. Was that the culture of your family growing up, where that you would make a lot of the things that you would use? <laughs> I think that actually grew out of this idea of laissez-faire parenting that leads to self-reliance, because my parents <laughs> just kind of let me go. And lacking that direction, you realize you can create that direction for yourself. Did your parents consciously want you to just have the freedom to do what you wanted, or or they were distracted by other things that might have caused <laughs> that laissez-faire approach? I would love to ask my parents that question. <laughs> uh, my dad was at work a lot, and I didn't see him all that much. I don't know. A lot of the schooling that I went to was just standard public schooling, mm-hmm. and I really couldn't fit into that. And mm-hmm. so... I was challenged at a really young age with either getting kicked out of class all the time or trying to make something hold my attention. Mm -hmm. And that type of process led me to see the world as I wanted to see it. So I would try and change it to fit me because I knew I couldn't fit into it. And that led, you know, when I was older to seeing psychiatrists and getting prescribed, you know, Adderall and things like that, which never interested me. What's an example of things that you tried to change to fit or be more aligned with your <laughs> yourself. Sitting in a desk with a textbook in front of you was something was very difficult for me. So I would ask the teacher if I could, you know, sit on the radiator. I remember this from like sixth, seventh grade, going back even earlier. Um, and what did, what did they say? Some of them would say yes. So what are other examples? What else? Not being able to keep my mouth shut, getting kicked out of class. I remember being really young and I'd gotten kicked out of class and I was standing in the hallway and the principal walked by. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is an elementary school. And I still remember this so clearly. And he said, what are you doing out in the hallway? And I really quickly said, "Uh, we're playing a game and I'm supposed to be standing out here while they do something. And then I go back in and (laughs) just kind of said, "Okay," And he kept walking. Um, And and what what part of all of this existing outside the mold was just kind of stimulating for you and you kind of got a, a rise out of being a troublemaker? I hope I wasn't trying to be a troublemaker. I hope it was just me being me. Uh, One of the things that's really difficult for me is I notice far too many things. Like I see a lot. So it's always like I have this type of sensory overload and I have to choose what to focus on. And I've always thought attention deficit disorder is the exact opposite. It's more like attention excess disorder where you're trying to pay attention to too many different things and then you can't focus. You mentioned that your father worked in architecture. What, What about your mom? 
My mom has been a teacher since I was really young, and more specifically teaching kids with behavioral disorders. So how did she feel when she thought her kid had just that? <laughs> she, yeah, it was interesting. She kind of passed me off at one point to, you know, to the professionals to see, okay, well, um, you know, I remember being 16 in this pivotal moment of discovering photography and probably smoking pot for the first time, just really opening up these different paths to creativity for me. And, you know, at that point, I was going into the city and Boston all night and taking pictures at night. I was doing a lot of night photography. And I would come home and I would pass out, you know, the tea in Boston. The last tea is, you know, probably around midnight. The tea um, being the subway. Yeah. So I would go in on the last tea and I would walk around and then I would come back on the earliest one, come home, sleep for an hour and go to school. And I would go to school and sometimes just cut all my classes and go sleep in the photography room. Uh, and then I would come home from school, fall back asleep, and get ready for another night out. And all my mom saw of that part was me sleeping all the time. And so she said, well, you must be depressed. So she said, you must be depressed. Did you feel depressed? Were you like, oh, she must be right. She's my mom. Or was she? Or did you think, oh, she just doesn't know that I've well, been out? Well, when you're 16, I think you by default think everything your parents say is wrong anyways. So <laughs> no, mm -hmm. initial reaction was, wasn't to say she was right. Sitting here with you, you seem a little bit soft-spoken and demure and well-behaved. It's hard to believe that you were kind of um, a miscreant or a, a maverick uh, growing up. Have you always had this same disposition? No, no. This has been a, a big change. And I remember, you know, nicknames from being a kid all had to do with me not being able to shut up or sit still. And there's a lot of patience that you learn in starting a business and working with other people. And it's also just adapting yourself to, to what's around. And I'll point out, this is a pretty quiet and demure place. Mm. So I feel that way. But yeah, when the company was just me and two engineers working out of my apartment, there was more screaming with those three people than there was in the company of 200 cumulatively across that entire company. Your parents divorced when you were in high school, and you you went to high school outside of Boston in Newton uh, for for two minutes, and then you you dropped out. Uh, I made it up to the beginning of my junior year, and then just discovered photography and stopped going to classes, and also got a job. My mom dropped me off in town and said, "Don't come home until you have a job." And I was a cashier at Marshalls was my very first job during the Christmas season. I think mm. I was the only person under. 60 work in there. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a great experience because I think a lot of how you learn what interests you is by learning what doesn't interest you. And getting that window opened really early on was helpful. Did you feel unconditional love from your family while you were going through all this hardship? No, there were times in there where, I mean, my parents' divorce was really tough for me. And there was a time where I wasn't really speaking with my mom and I left home and went and lived with my uncle in South Boston. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was just me discovering who I was. And I think I was so intent on that exploration that I naturally cut my ties, you know, my really close ties with my parents there. Mm -hmm. And it's been a fun journey where you realize how you can get deep into something that you really care about and that can take you away from these other relationships that that are really important. I saw my dad do this in, in my parents' marriage where, you know, he focused on work to the point where, you know, my mom didn't feel loved. And I've definitely caught myself doing that with, with my work. You know, the girlfriend that I had when I started Etsy, you know, left me about probably eight months into starting Etsy. And 
there's this balance and you really have to decide what what you care about and what matters most at that moment. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Rob Kalin, the founder of Etsy, an online marketplace for handmade items, including furniture, jewelry, and clothing. So here you are in 2005, 25 years old, living in Brooklyn, uh, trying to make a life uh, being a woodworker, uh, furniture designer. How did you come up with the idea for Etsy in that moment? I graduated from college, my fifth college, and had that BA and kind of held it up and said, all right, well, time to go get a job. And seeing what doors that degree opened for me was a huge disappointment where I saw people who were a year older than me who'd spent all of this time studying literature and the jobs that they were getting were a notch above or alphabetizing filing cabinets at a publishing firm. And I wanted to do something that didn't waste this incredible education that I felt like I'd received and created for myself. And knew at that point that if I just went to work for some other big company, I wasn't going to be able to realize that. So started my own company with woodworking and said, okay, well, I'm going to make furniture. And I was making these couture computer cases. I was making wooden computer cases and looked for the best way to sell those and looked on in the offline world. And there's consignment, there's wholesaling, and neither of those were really my cup of tea. I looked at the online world and neither of those really worked out. And so that was on the back burner. And then the magical moment happened when I started working with Jean Rayla, who was the creator of Get Crafty. And she's uh, an amazing person. I met her through a professor at NYU that I knew. I was starting a web development company as a way to to learn in one sense where I didn't know anything about making websites but I felt like there was something magical about that medium and she asked me to help her rebuild Get Crafty and that was my introduction to um, designing websites and then also building something that's helping communities organize and helping people communicate and the community there was definitely crafters and uh, a lot of them women who were doing their crafting as a hobby and looking to sell some of the stuff and I was looking to sell my own furniture, and so that idea percolated, and I talked with Jean about adding a marketplace to get crafty, and um, she said, and I probably agree with her, that it would probably be better to start the, the marketplace separate instead of doing it inside of Get Crafty, because Get Crafty was really just a you know community of people talking. So one thing led to another, and the idea of creating the marketplace as a marketplace took birth. What, by the way, was the name of your furniture company? The same as the name of the marketplace. I actually still have my very first business cards where it says Etsy and there's a picture of this plywood table that I was designing on the card. I just found that when I was packing stuff up. You came up with the name Etsy. It was inspired by uh, a Fellini film called Eight and a Half. What's that story? There's a scene where Guido's having a flashback to his childhood and there's a painting on the wall and if you say this magic phrase, Asa Nisi Masa, the painting comes alive and looks at where this hidden treasure is. And so for me, it's just that idea of a magical nonsense word that when you utter it will reveal hidden treasures. At what point did Etsy go from a vehicle for selling your furniture to your sole endeavor? Like, wow, I'm going to focus all my time on this and forget the furniture thing. When I initially started Etsy, my thinking was, I'll build the marketplace where I'd like to sell what I'm making, and then I'll get right back to making these things, and I just need the right venue to sell them. And another component to that was I was trying to set up my own e-commerce shop to sell what I was making on my own, and it was this lonely little website on the vast internet. And I'd seen the power of community working with Get Crafty, and there was another 
site called Craftster. And I wanted that community to bolster the marketplace. And, you know, I looked into things like CSA, uh, Community Supported Agriculture, where you have a model of commerce that if it's just the kind of straight up capitalism where its values are based on price and convenience, then in some cases it actually just won't work. There's a great documentary I just watched called The Real Dirt on Farmer John, and he was trying to make his farm successful. And the farm wasn't successful until he adopted that community's supported agriculture model. So that was in the back of my head as well, where the, the community component to it would be central to making the marketplace work. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Rob Kalin, founder of Etsy. We'll hear more from Rob coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Rob Kalin, the founder of Etsy, an online marketplace for handmade crafts and vintage items. Rob started the company in 2005 while he was 25 years old, and Etsy has more than one million artisans who sell their items on the site. Once you launched Etsy with two of your friends from NYU, did people come immediately? Talk to me about the, the, those early days. Yeah, it was amazing. I remember just launching the website, and one of the beauties of the web is you just push a button and it's globally accessible. So you're just kind of sitting back wondering who's going to discover it. And we'd spent uh, an RG with three months building it. So we launched it and then just went out to dinner, came home and I think fell asleep. And then in the morning woke up and saw that a couple people had registered, but no one had put any items up. And then someone opened a shop, someone lists a couple items, a couple days go by, someone bought one of the first items. And that is one of the most amazing feelings to see something go from nothing to all of a sudden you're connecting people, you're helping people sell things. What were some of those things that people sold in the you know first day, two, three, four, week? I remember buying a crocheted cat toy with catnip in it, and that was one of the very first items listed. And crochet and knitting have always played a, a kind of central role to the the identity of Etsy. I used to tell people that the name was an acronym for everything takes some yarn. <laughs> and you had three cats at the time. Yeah, I was working at an animal shelter and just they're those cats that no one else wants. I'm a sucker for taking those home. Did you purposely buy a lot of the items uh, from these craftsmen in the early days just to give them kind of this positive feedback that, oh, yes, the site works? I wish I could have done that. I was broke. I was working <laughs> for my landlord to, you know, kind of not have to pay rent and was buying what I liked and what I could afford at mm. the time. Did you list your own furniture on the site? Yeah, I listed one of my computers and... Wait, you're one of your computers or computer cases? I mean, it was a full functioning computer. Like, I put the guts in it. I wasn't, you know, soldering any of them, but I was assembling the components, so... You'd push a button and it would turn on and it was a working computer. So you put one of your computers on Etsy and what happened? I charged what I put into it, basically not making any money, but it still means the thing costs around $1,000. And so, especially in the beginning, it was mainly the lower price items that were selling. So I put it up and it worked great for press because I guess it was a noteworthy design. And so that got picked up. And a lot of that early momentum comes from people writing about what you're doing. And that's been one piece of advice that I've always given to Etsy sellers asking how to be successful is make things worth sharing and worth talking about. 
you mentioned you had friends who helped you launch the site, and you'd have screaming arguments with these colleagues from NYU. Uh, I would call them loving arguments, and that was Chris McGuire and Haim Shopik, and still have a lot of love for those guys. That was just us, in some ways, not even knowing what we were getting into. But I remember one time sitting down on the couch with them and kind of putting my arms on their shoulders and saying, what we're about to do is incredibly difficult, but the only reason we have this opportunity to do it is because of how difficult it is. If it was easy, it would have been done, or other people would be doing it better than us right now. Mm -hmm. And going into that together, that type of camaraderie, I think that you have both sides of things going well and things not going well. It's kind of like I've heard some people say when a couple stops arguing, it means the love's gone out of the relationship, where there's always both sides of that. So people trickled in initially. When did you start getting traction where you thought, wow, you know what, I have something here? Was it a specific person uh, who bought something? Or was it just the volume of people who bought something or sold things? So to me, I've always measured success for Etsy on making other people successful. So early on, looking at how we were measuring that, it was more what people were talking about in the forums, which became the central place to communicate. What's an example of that? There are stories of a woman whose kid was really sick, and she was spending a lot of time in the hospital, and she'd been getting really depressed, and she started um, selling what she'd been knitting, and that gave her this new motivation to to knit more. Turn, I guess turning her hobby into a business coincided with, you know, her son being in the hospital and, and getting better. And you just, you learn about all of these things. And having visibility into that, to me, is this huge motivator. And that's the beauty of the web is all of these serendipitous connections that can happen. Your grandfather helped you in the early days. Your grandfather had worked at IBM. What, what kind of help did he provide? He was a good sounding board, and a lot of his advice I didn't take, for doing the basics of the business side. And I've never been strong in finance, and I've never been strong, you know, even writing the traditional business plan that, that he was looking for. And the earliest fundraising that I did with Etsy, which to me is the most meaningful, was going to people who I'd built things for and saying, here's something that I'm building, would you like to support it? And those were people who, above everything else, were investing in me. They didn't need a business plan. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years and going out and, and raising venture capital, completely different game. And, you know, my grandfather was much more used to things at larger companies. And I remember the first investment we got, <laughs> he said, why would anybody give you money? <laughs> and then he met with that investor, with Spencer, who's a great guy. And the first thing he said to Spencer was, how would you feel if Rob lost all of your money? <laughs> and Spencer said, it would sting, but okay. <laughs> and for my grandfather, that was the prerequisite for letting him invest. So who was Spencer and why did he give you money? Spencer, and how much did he give you? Etsy's first two investors were Spencer Ain and Sean Meenan, and then Spencer's brother Judson also invested. I met Spencer because I remodeled the bottom floor of his duplex and built him a bar. In and Manhattan. Yep, he lives uh, above Tower Records on Broadway. And I met Sean because he was opening up Habana Outpost across the street from my apartment where I started Etsy in Brooklyn. And he needed some computers and he wanted to give the whole neighborhood free Wi-Fi. So I remember hanging over the side of his building installing an outdoor wireless antenna. Those are the types of relationships where once you've formed that, 
you know, for Spencer, it was, okay, well, you built this this bar, and um, I've worked with you, and for Sean, it's you hung over the side of a building for me. Uh, <laughs> and they both ended up investing $50,000 early on. Hmm. At what point did you say, you know what, I'm going to need more capital than just, you know, one or $200,000 for this? I wish we had that type of choice. You know, thinking back, there's a lot I'd like to have done differently about those early days. We hit these walls where we had to scale the site for growth and we had to go buy hardware. And things like Amazon Web Services didn't exist back then. So I remember the engineer I was working with just saying, we need 20 grand in two days or the site's not going to come back online. Those were the walls that we hit where it was really capital intensive and had to go out and raise more money. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Rob Kalin, the founder of Etsy, an online marketplace for handmade items, including furniture, jewelry, and clothing. Etsy cuts out the middleman by connecting buyers directly with artisans who sell items ranging from clocks to knitwear to guitars. Rob started Etsy in 2005 when he was 25 years old. In addition to the the early angel investors, who were some of your allies in the early days? Soon after I launched Etsy, I wrote a fan letter to the founders of Flickr, Katerina and Stuart, who were heroes to me, just asking for their advice. Flickr, the photo sharing website currently owned by Yahoo, and they invited me out to San Francisco and made the rounds out there. They were super helpful. This was back in 2005, so before there were really any web startups in New York City. Why were you so entranced by Flickr? The craftsmanship of what they'd built and the sense of community around it. And that was one of the first websites from a design perspective to just cut away all of the cruft and just show the content of the page. And I was spending a lot of time designing Etsy, and that was a big influence on me. What did you ask for in the letter, if anything? I wrote them a letter the way a kid throws a penny off a building, you know, not not really expecting any kind of reply. And I think it took a couple tries, but Stuart got back to me first. How did they help you? first it was just, you know, there was this world that I knew nothing about. You know, I'm someone who just was meandering my own path out east and then, you know, went to visit them in San Francisco and went down to the valley. And Katerina up front was helpful just kind of saying, here's what I think is good about this world and here's what I think is not so good about this world. And making a lot of really good introductions. And, you know, there was a brief period of time where I was thinking of moving the company out there. But I'm an East Coaster at heart. I need winter and seasons. And so knew that I was going to keep the company in Brooklyn. At some point, they introduced you to Fred Wilson, who runs Union Square Ventures, a leading venture firm in New York City. How did that encounter go? You said that you were starving for capital. So was venture capital the the road you wanted to take? No, initially, we were just looking to do a small angel round. And one way that I've grown the company since the beginning has always been basically take what you need and no more and spend what you have and no more. Again, this is my grandfather's good influence on me. So, you know, we'd, we were going to raise, um, I don't even remember the amounts, you know, probably a quarter of a million dollars. And we were wrapping that up and Katarina said, we'll just go meet with Fred. And uh, I had a dinner with him. And for me, and maybe this makes me old school, I don't know, but a handshake will mean more than contract and, you know, looking someone in the eyes and connecting with them means more than a term sheet. And found both of those things with Fred where had a good reputation and definitely understood from a product perspective what we were trying to build. A lot of people at that time, I remember like when eBay was starting, people looked at Pierre and said, people won't buy things over the internet. And with Etsy, a lot of people thought, oh, 
crafty handmade things, tiny market, that kind of thing. And for me, this was building something that was going to change the way the world's economy worked. Mm -hmm. And he definitely got that. So there was that connection. When you launched the company, you were the founder and CEO. Since then, there have been some other CEOs uh, that have come and gone from Maria Thomas, uh, who incidentally was a, a former employee at NPR, and most recently, Chad Dickerson, who was the CTO of the company, the chief technology officer. And in between Maria and Chad, you were again the, the CEO. That implies a certain level of turbulence. What's the story there? So I was the CEO for the first four years and knew that there was this swath of business acumen that I didn't have and in some ways wasn't wasn't passionate about. You know, I knew what I was passionate about, which is much more on the product side and the customer support side. So, you know, I was always honestly trying to do what was what was best for the company. And so that first shift was me stepping aside saying, I think this is what's what's best for Etsy. And so I said, I'm going to focus on the product stuff and you get to run the business and tried that out for a while. And that didn't end up working out. And then when I came back, same thing, I said, okay, well, here's what my original vision was. Here's what I think is happening now. And I want to, I want to return to that. How do you feel now not running the company? It was amazingly painful to go through. I mean, the emotions, it's, not quite as bad as having your heart broken by someone you love, but it's also losing your life's work. And for me, losing six years of work and in one fell swoop. And I lost all those connections to, you know, the company was 200 people. And, and those are people I really, really loved collaborating with. And I lost all of that in, in an instant. And I think in some ways, that's just like being in love and, and having your heart broken, you know, Sure, you put your heart back together, but you remember that it was broken. And so to me, understand what it means to be an entrepreneur and be a CEO by having it whisked away from you, you know, by getting booted out of your own company. It's been, it's been tough, and I've been rebuilding and thinking about what I want. I've gotten married, expecting a kid, and it feels okay now, but there's definitely still these flashpoints where you think back to the things you wanted to do, you think back to the people that you miss, and it's really hard. Did, did you understand why uh, the investors no longer wanted you to be CEO? Or did it was it going through like anger, denial, you know, those... Uh, oh, you definitely... Yeah, that... What is that? Denial, like denial anger. anger. Yeah, that's very accurate. And you traverse them. I mean, they were doing what they thought was best for the company. Right. You know, Fred Wilson wrote a blog post about my lack of management skills. And my biggest regret about all of it was... I wasn't given the chance to take their feedback and learn from it. And I'm actually the type of person that really likes criticism. You know, it's going back to art school where you have crits and people come in and they really challenge you about what you're doing. And to me, that's how I get better. Mm -hmm. And never really got that level of criticism from the board so that I could get better. And when I did get the criticism, it was, here's our criticism of you. There's the door. And that was the hardest part for me. Our producer just told us that it's the Kubler-Ross model of grieving. So denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. I skipped the denial part. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways, I skipped the anger part. And then that came later. I may have to revise this model. For me, it was um, <laughs> I felt sorry. And 
in a way, I wanted to apologize to Fred for what I felt like was letting him down. This was someone I'd been working with for years at that point, and on the one hand, have earned him probably around a 50 times return on his investment. But on the other hand, felt like, you know, when you're taking people's money, you're you're making a pact. And that understanding that I had with the earliest Etsy investors, with Sean Meenan and Spencer and Judson Ain, was that you did right by me and I'm going to do right by you. And we definitely had disagreements along the way. I think Sean at one point threatened to punch me in the face for something I was doing that he thought was really wrong. But throughout those relationships was always given the chance to show that I could learn. And so it went from that feeling of being sorry to that feeling of being treated unfairly and this realization that, hey, you know, I generally live my life by treating other people the way that I would want to be treated. And this is a way that I wouldn't treat someone else. And so that led to confusion. And then those give way to anger after that. I remember going home and going to the beach uh, just to, you know, try and clear my head and just sobbing. And that's still there. You know, you don't ever get over that. What have you bought on Etsy most recently? A rocking chair and, I mean, gifts for other people. But also, to be honest, haven't done that much shopping on it since I got the boot just because it's it's like going back to your old neighborhood where you got beat up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What are you doing now? So also... I'm having a kid and a big challenge for me is build the educational experience that you would want your own children to have. And so I'm starting parachutes.org up in Hudson, New York, and I'm going to be starting a school. What kind of school? Unlike any other school that has ever existed, it'll be a one part trade school where, you know, how do you understand what your avocation is? And then um, one part vocational training where here's how to make a living doing what you love. What ages? My preference now is under 7 and over 70, so to have this really interesting juxtaposition of, of younger people and older people. What was the impetus for moving to the Catskills from Brooklyn, even though you still have a place in Brooklyn? I have family from up there, and also thinking about starting a family of my own. I uh, would much rather do that in a place where you can have a better connection to the land and your food and uh, the, the local community there. By the way, what does your home look like? I just found this book in a bookstore titled Handmade Modern, and I was like, wow, that's my aesthetic. So I like the cleaner lines of modernism, but I can't stand the blankness of the materials that they use. And so I like everything from, you know, hand-hewn wood beams to losing lots of reclaimed materials and being able to see the imprints of previous generations on those materials that you're using. And so they have, you know, I have flooring that used to be beams in a factory in Pennsylvania and, um, you know, tabletops that have been made from bridges. And th- these things have previous lives and that you're, you're working to restore some of their utility after they've moved from one thing to another. Your wife's name is Layla. How did you meet her? And what does she do? She designs and makes clothing. And for a lot of musicians, she was working in the same building that Etsy was in, Etsy's first office building. I was learning how to sing and play guitar, and I'd spent about three years getting over all of the bashfulness around what it takes to perform for other people. And there was this really cool back stairway in the building that was all concrete, so lots of reverb. And I invited her up one night, and got up the gusto to sing to her and I was like well this is either going to end things really quickly (laughs) or maybe something beautiful can come of it I guess it went okay we got married what did you sing to her some early traditional stuff some Bob Dylan stuff some like early Jim James solo stuff before he did my morning jacket uh 
and I was composing my own songs at that point, too. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Rob Kalin, the founder of Etsy. Coming up, we'll meet Lyndon Rive, co-founder of Solar City. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. Gave her my heart, but she wanted my soul. Don't think twice, it's all right to 